0: Not even natural selection can take place here. The world is being engulfed
1: in truth. And this is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but
0: a whimper. We're trying to stop that from happening. It's our responsibility as rulers. Just as in genetics, unnecessary information
1: and memory must be filtered out to stimulate the evolution of the species.
0: And you think you're qualified to decide what's necessary and not? Absolutely.
1: Who else could wade through the sea of garbage you people produce, retrieve valuable truths, and even interpret their meaning for later generations?
0: That's what it means to create context.
2: I'll decide for myself what to
0: believe and what to pass on. But is that even your own idea?
3: Are now listening to la, 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 la. wow I'm not going to cut that. You are now listening to Enter VR, the podcast where we talk about all things virtual reality. I am Chris Miranda, your host, and I have this thing memorized now. Um, on today's show, I have uh the creators of Red Frame. I'm speaking with Andrew and Michael. Uh and and I am uh very happy to have you guys on the show. Great, thanks for having us. So, cool. Um, let's talk about Red Frame really quick. Where did it where did the inspiration come from for this for this really cool experience? And by the way, can you tell me can you tell for like for all the listeners who haven't played Red Frame what it is?
1: Sure. Um so Red Frame's a game that's basically kind of an exploration adventure game. Um it's in 3D, so it's obviously going to be um something that we do on the Rift and it takes place in a very large mansion that is sort of a surreal environment. Um and the game's really about exploring and learning about this environment, the people who live there, and progressing through it. Um, it's a little bit of a mystery, um, some puzzle elements to it, but the primary thrust of it is um, exploration um, and
2: presence in a place you would never be in in the real world. Mm. What most people are familiar with, in the VR community at least, is a small demo
1: that we released, which is just one bedroom, which I think is one of 18 rooms, I think, in the full mansion.
0: Yeah, there's 18 rooms in the mansion, and then there's
1: um, some significant other parts of the environment that we're still working on. Um, So it's definitely a much larger
3: experience than what most people have seen. Wow, that is extremely exciting. Uh, that's a big-ass mansion. <laughs> yeah. What is uh, What was the thing that pushed you guys over to, to the edge to develop for virtual reality in the first place? Um, I think
1: that um, Mike sort of got into it a little bit earlier um, and was following the whole development of it. Um, at the time, we were working on Red Frame Mortar, just thinking as a PC sort of game, mm-hmm. uh, PC Mac, and... Uh, we saw it on a 3D TV, which on its own was pretty cool, um, and realized that it sort of created a, a neat sense of looking into more of a real world than you see just in 2D. Um, and then once we got the Rift development kit, we just sort of dropped it into our existing game, um, which is pretty easy, and started walking around the house in VR, and it was really stunning to us how much more real it felt, and it was this place we'd been building for several years, and It was like, oh, wow, we're actually inside this house now. It was really amazing. So that was sort of an indicator we
2: should start developing for VR technology. And I've been kind of a a hardware nut for a while, so I tended to try and get my hands on any sort of new input or output hardware as it was coming out. Um, I've done a a few different Kickstarters and things. Um, So I was trying to kind of cobble together my own system for for developing you know greater sense of presence inside of these kinds of environments, mm-hmm. so I initially started with like the Leap Motion controller and figuring out how to how to maybe do input. Um, at the time, VR wasn't even on on our radar. Uh, so like Andrew was saying, I was looking at 3D TVs and thinking like, so is there a way I could spatially match up like the the Leap input with the 3D display and do some sort of IR head tracking? Um, so it ended up kind of with this very <laughs> Very clunky you know, assemblage, the assemblage of, of pieces that, uh, when Rift came along, it solved a lot of those problems. So mm-hmm. the head tracking became part of the display, and it seemed like a really obvious solution to us to move forward
3: with that. Nice. Yeah, Red Frame is one of those. It's one of those experiences that I've tried, and it the you know the first thing you you think about when you're inside there is just how beautiful the environment is. How. I mean, I can definitely tell this wasn't made. You know, this de- this demo, this experience wasn't made by people with, you know, amateurs. I-, I gotta say that you got. I mean, do you guys have development background, video game making backgrounds? Um, yeah, we've we've done um, some contract
0: work mostly. Um, I was actually a 3D person really long ago,
1: like when I was probably 13
0: years old, um, and just been doing it as a hobby for a long time before I started taking it more seriously as a profession. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the
1: look, um, some of the quality is there just because we really iterated on trying to make the specific thing look good. you know, yeah. um, We didn't approach it as a broad sort of thing. We said we want to make a house and make it look really realistic and nice, um, and just did a lot of research and um, sort of experiments to see how far we could push that with the technology we had available.
3: What engine are you currently using to uh, for Red frame?
1: We're using Unity.
3: Wow, Unity looks that good, really.
2: Okay. <laughs> That's a comment that we get a lot. Um, so we've actually put a lot of work into um, into building an external lighting pipeline. Uh-huh. Uh, so we actually had started building um, building this environment before Unity even had integrated light mapping. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at the time, it certainly was extremely impressive. Um, It's kind of, I think, going to start to look more like a Unity game when Unity 5 comes out. They have a whole new set of lighting features, but uh, I guess Andrew can say a bit more about that. Yeah, Yeah, um, a big aspect of it is
1: um, some people probably picked up on the fact that a lot of, or pretty much all the lighting in that demo and in our game is pre-baked into large textures. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's not really anything we can't do in terms of capturing diffuse lighting in an environment. Mm. Um, and we can use any sort of external rendering engine we want. So right now we're using Turtle, which is a plugin for Maya. Um, but it, it basically comes down to just having sort of the physically correct light, um, good art assets, and um, you know, nice texturing and everything. But that's more important, it seems, than any specific feature of the game engine.
3: If you guys had to choose between having the best lighting in, in, in a game engine in the world versus the best texturing or the best materials, w- which one would you choose? I, and I, 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 I ask that because I'm coming from a background that knows no knowledge, has no knowledge over you know uh, graphic engines and stuff. and so you know is, is it is it the light that makes games look good or is it the polygon count the textures that make it look good? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously it's sort of a combination of things, but, um, correct lighting is really important for making things feel realistic, Mm -hmm. obviously. So if you have really good lighting on say kind of a low poly model, it can still look pretty sort of believable. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you had a really high density environment with really crappy lighting, um, it would still feel like a video game, you know? Um, So if you look at something like Mirror's Edge, it looks really nice just because they used a very nice lighting solution, Mm -hmm. um, more than having like high poly or or really high res textures or anything. Um, And in that demo, there's even very minimal sort of reflection or specularity. It's mostly just sort of diffuse lighting, but um, it's cohesive.
3: Interesting. Interesting. So when all is said and done how how many hours of worth of gameplay do you think the average gamer will be able to get out of out of red frame and you know how big will the game be what you know what features will it encompass if you're you know, allowed to say that sort of information
2: yeah it's, um, it's actually it's a little tough to say right now uh, we're realizing that actually people tend in VR at least tend to um, hang out in the same space much longer than we would have anticipated
0: mm. uh,
2: so the game. In terms of just like sheer amount of content, it's probably actually going to be reduced a bit from our initial vision, which is good because it saves us time, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think people can have a really rich experience just exploring a single room as they've done with the, the demo that we've released. So mm-hmm. we're still grappling with that a bit.
1: Um, in terms of content, well, I guess Andrew,
0: do you want yeah, to I
3: think
1: Yeah, uh, I think the game, yeah, the length will be pretty variable. It'll be somewhere between you know, two and eight hours, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it'll also come down to sort of like, you know, there's some puzzle elements, some story elements, and we're only going to kind of keep in the stuff that really feels good. Mm-hmm. Um, and since so it's just two people making this more or less, um, we, we want to make something that feels really high quality, um, and satisfying, but we're probably not going to train stretch it much beyond accomplishing that goal. Um, so we don't want the game to feel like, oh, that was really short. But at the same time, it's not going to be expanded way out, bigger than it needs to be.
3: How? Um, Sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, and just in terms of, like you were saying, in terms of VR, um, you get a lot more mileage out of a smaller environment uh, than if you're in sort of first-person shooter mode, you just run through everything, you know.
3: Yeah, how, how difficult is it for, for a couple of indie developers such as yourselves to create a game for a medium that's never existed, quite existed uh, for consumers. I mean, what are your what are your your more, your most pressing challenges at, at this point when you're developing for VR?
2: Hmm. That's a good question. So, I, I think initially, since um, cause I, I got the the Rift as part of the initial Kickstarter, uh, when that first batch went out, really no one had had touched this. No one had. Try to figure out how to use it, or like what the you know, what the conventions are. Like, how do you how do you control the player's movement, and you know, how how do you draw the player's attention in VR if they can look anywhere they please, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think a big part of the challenge is just experimenting and then finding a good set of play testers to test it with. Uh, so we found that once people start to get used to a certain convention that you're testing. Um, that they adapt to it pretty quickly, but it's difficult to tell like what uh, what the most number of people are most receptive to. Um, so, like for example, uh, we're probably going to limit the player's ability to walk backwards or sidestep, mm. uh, which is something that we had determined pretty early on, just through playtesting, that you know, that tended to make people sick or they wouldn't even think to try it necessarily. Whereas in a standard first-person shooter that that's a control that you definitely want to have. You want to let them sidestep around objects. Yeah. Um, and that we were only able to really discover that by putting a
1: bunch of people in it and seeing how they, how they uh, tested it. Yeah. And another challenge to VR, I think is sort of having faith that the hardware is going to end up where we expect it to end up.
0: Yeah.
1: So we're not developing this with like DK one in mind, obviously mm-hmm. um, we have sort of a sense of how comfortable and experience it will be. And that's going to determine how long the game is and, you know what we expect from the player in terms of staying in there and being immersed in it um so we're pretty you know pretty confident that you know by the time consumer version comes out it's going to be something we're imagining or whatever um so we're sort sort of targeting for this imaginary place that we think it will be um and not being too skittish about like oh people might get sick or something so we can't
3: do this like we definitely need to believe in where vr is going and Act accordingly. Do you think that 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 you know that thought of oh people might get sick or, or is that do you think that's holding you back from uh, from innovating or pushing the the hardware or I mean the software or, or is it or is it does it improve on, on uh, you know having that obstacle in, in front of you?
1: Yeah, I mean we know that like latency is going to get better and the screens are going to get better. Yeah. Um, I also think people spending more time in VR that minimizes sickness a bit. Like I don't really get VR sickness anymore. Um, very much, at least with the DK1. Um, so I think it's probably not very productive to be too worried about some of these things. At least, you know, you want to be worried a little bit and sort of um, be realistic about the hardware, but we don't want to um, sort of cripple the game early or something.
3: You know? Yeah. You, you just... Logistically, how would the joystick look like in terms of you know? Because I feel like since we can't sidestep, or you're trying to, you're, we're figuring out how, how, how sidestep hurts the immersion. Um, how do you how do you arrange the joysticks then? How, uh, will 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 it even have joystick support? What's your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, that's something that we're uh, we're pretty deep into the experimental phase on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, you know, hoping to get our hands on on all the new input tech that's coming out like the the stem system and so on um i think that's that's an area that people really haven't figured out yet and i'm certain well i don't know but i'm fairly certain that that oculus themselves has some internal prototypes and they're probably working on that as well mm-hmm. um because i think i think that the, you know, the standard xbox style input is pretty limited mm-hmm. um, it doesn't really map quite correctly to how you want to behave in vr um, it's really designed more for the standard kind of screen-based first-person
1: shooter. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. And that's even much worse if you try and use a mouse um, mm-hmm. to rotate or something. Um, I've even on some of these demos used like the Q and E keys to turn because it just feels more comfortable than having, having an erratic mouse input turn your head around.
0: Yeah. You know.
3: Yeah, that's it. It's definitely something that is, is truly being, you know, we're like in the inception of, or you guys are, you know, I'm speaking to people who are at the edge of knowledge of this. Like this is being worked out as we speak. And, and, and so, in your mind, like, what would be the ideal input device in a perfect world? What do you think is the ideal input device for virtual reality, or or Red Frame for that matter?
2: Yeah, well, I think for this sort of first-person style of game, or for a, you know something where you're walking around on a flat plane, relatively. Uh, the best thing would be a really high quality omnidirectional treadmill where right? you're not going to get caught up in cables. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, one one problem you run into there is, is you don't have that sense of movement. I mean, some people have done experiments where you apply some electricity behind your ears to try and right, simulate the feeling of motion. But, um, yeah, I think, I think that's really the, the only way to go. Actually, what you turn physically around 360 degrees and feel as though you are Using your feet and legs to move forward.
3: Yeah, or or somehow disconnecting the brain from the central nervous system so yeah. that no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so it, the next question I wanted to ask you is uh, w- since you guys are making this for for Oculus Rift, is this also going to be is, is there also going to be a PC port for this game? Uh, yeah, I think um, I mean the way we're designing
1: it is probably to work fine as a standard 2d game mm-hmm. it just isn't really the the optimal experience we feel to, to play the game yeah um but interestingly a lot of like to go back a little bit to that last question um sort of relates the um yeah. the thing we've been thinking a lot about is what's the player actually do in this game and sort of the simplest version of it so that would be like move from place to place um there's some interaction where you'd want like a mouse or your hand or something. Um, So figure out what those really core elements are of interaction and then find the simplest way to get those across. Um, And interestingly, doing that, I've actually had ideas of how to make the game work better even as a PC game without Oculus.
0: Um,
1: So we just sort of reconsider a lot of things. Um, So, yeah, we definitely wouldn't want to sort of exclude people who didn't have a Rift initially, um, but we are definitely designing it with the Rift in mind as how you should play the game.
3: Is that is that a, a is that a, I mean I totally understand if it's if it's out a business decision uh, because again we can't predict the future we don't know the future of oculus even though Facebook is rolling money to them you know it's still unpredictable uh, you know for example we just saw this this lawsuit that we can we can talk about in a little bit but um, yeah, is that a business decision? The fact that you're making uh, for both platforms, Oculus and PC, or is it more of you know? Yeah,
1: I think it's more about inclusiveness yeah. for me. Like it's like I just want as many people to play it as possible. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I could definitely understand there there'll be a certain portion of the population who just doesn't want to use a Rift or doesn't want to experience a game that way. Yeah. Um and um, so hopefully the core of the game is strong enough that it, it, it gives value to the player regardless of, you know, what mode they play it in. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, we hope people do play it with a rift and, and hopefully a lot of people will have them in the near future and it'll be a more ubiquitous way to play games. Well, actually a lot of our
2: early design decisions, um, uh, back before we even were aware of VR, um, tended to make for good VR experiences, to, so to some degree we got lucky with that. Like we decided early on that we weren't going to have a graphical user interface, it would just be you interacting with objects physically within this world. Mm. Um, so the, there's a more direct translation between the two than for many other games.
3: Yeah, I was that uh, that was gonna lead to my next question because is, is what you know once once the rift arrives, the consumer rift arrives, and I am a consumer out there in the world, in the wild, of picking games, figuring out what game I want to play. Do I do I play Red Frame on a regular PC or do I play it on the Oculus? And and I and I think like you know for you as a developer and designers, you know how can you compel me? To play on the Rift, what what sorts of things will I be able to do with the Rift version that I wouldn't be able to do with the PC version?
2: Yeah, that that I think is going to be a tough sell. Probably not just for Red Frame, but mm-hmm. games in general. Yeah, it's, yeah. We it's... found that it's very hard to to convey to someone actually what the value of the R is unless they experience it. Yeah. So actually, a, a core part of our of the story and the style of this game revolves around. Uh, a sense of being in a real place Um, and of course the rift is the most direct way to do that yeah something that was very hard for us to figure out how to do on a 2d screen but you know you can tell someone like like oh you'll understand you'll inherently understand the content of this game better if you experience it as though you're physically there more than if you see it on a screen but until they actually try that it's kind of hard to to,
0: to believe that so
3: yeah, no, it's definitely something that is that is a question that that is across the board in general. You know, every developer at this point is is having to uh, to to struggle or or, or or you know put up with, and so yeah, I think yeah, Red Frame seems to uh, seems that is it's gonna head in that direction. Now, in terms of uh, design, you know, have you encountered any gameplay mechanics that are only that you can only pull them off with the rift, um, or, or, are you aware of any of that stuff?
2: <laughs> Actually, I think right now it's making everything uniformly slightly more difficult. <laughs> really? <laughs> Just again, going back to the, the input issues, like yeah. there's no, there's no really good input for this. Uh, initially, we we were designing some of our puzzles around mouse input, where you have to do some relatively precise movement of objects. Uh, but now that that you aren't able to see the mouse there's like one extra layer of abstraction in your way Trying to imagine where your hand is in physical space which maps to the mouse which maps to the game it's kind of a a pretty bad head trip Um, but yeah i think probably once we start to see what kinds of of vr input vr specific input is being developed um, that'll give us some ideas for how we can break through some of those problems
3: so, so Red Frame is going to be uh, targeted towards towards hardcore gamers, ca- casual consumers? Uh, I mean, uh, are you just making this game because it's, it's super fun for you and you, uh, you figured? <laughs> yeah, I
1: think it, it'll be targeted towards people who like the kind of games we like,
3: whoever mm. that is. <laughs> um,
1: we're, <laughs> so, we're anticipating there's at least some of them out there. Right, so it's probably not an easily delineated group of people or something. It's just um, the game is very inspired by... Things that were interesting to us when we were younger and games we played. Um, so you know, trying to recreate that experience. And obviously, as you get older, you're not as impressed by things. Um, so the cool thing about the Rift is it's able to kind of regain some of that ground and, and make you feel the the way you did when you were a kid. Yeah. You know, and because when you were a kid, everything's immersive. Yeah. Um, you know, and now everything's you're sort of used to it. So. Um, Hopefully yeah we can just find whatever those group of people are who want to play this kind of thing, but I, I definitely don't know how you would describe that group
3: Well, you're speaking to one of those people uh, so so we're out here yeah you know that that that's an interesting uh, thing you bring up you know how the things that used to impress us and amaze us when we were little no longer you know uh, even uh, amuse us you know like I bring up uh, for example Godzilla you know the have you seen the new trailers for the new Godzilla? It, oh yeah, it, 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 holy shit it looks raw, it looks crazy. Um it, and you could put compare that one to the old school 1998 Godzilla with uh, what was his name? Uh not Jerry Bruckheimer but 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 uh but yeah, like it it felt like Sesame Street compared to this, you know, this this new Godzilla. So I feel like it's 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 a trend that not only plagues game developers but also Hollywood where, you know, every Every other decade, they have to, you know, up the ante with like drama, sex, bad words, violence, um, because people are becoming more and more. I feel like desensitized. You know, it's just you, know. Right,
1: and you get diminishing returns every time you do that. So, I mean, if you look at these blockbuster movies, um, the special effects are really starting to hit a point where they can't make it feel like a new experience anymore. Um, so like the last movie that probably kind of did that was avatar in terms of the visual effects being at a slightly higher level than anything else, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't as impactful. I think as like when people saw Jurassic park or something. Yeah. So I think as you start to lose, like you can't use technology forever to capture that same thing. Um, just on its own, you need to find a way to figure out what the technology is doing and leverage it in a new, interesting way. Um, So, like if you're using virtual reality, I think if you just put more crazy graphics and more explosions and more um, shaders and just try and really max out the visuals, that might almost
0: burn out too early. Yes. People need to step back and really think about what this experience is and then create something for it that's, um,
1: you know, personal or interesting or whatever.
2: I think what's interesting about VR
1: specifically as a new technology is that.
2: It's, a, it's to some degree, it lets you take familiar things that are perhaps even very simple and see them in a very new kind of way. Um, so, I know, like, initially, when the Rift came out and it wasn't a lot of content, people started creating custom drivers that would let you um, see older games in stereo and have that tracking. And people started to realize, like, oh, there's details in here I didn't see before, you know, or there's like, the scale of things is totally
1: wrong. Isn't this really strange that I'm that I'm chest height compared to all the other characters mm-hmm. and things like that? Yeah, a really interesting realization we had was um, one of the rooms in Red Frame is a living room, which is um, one of these living rooms that's basically two stories high. So it just has a really tall ceiling. And then when you're in the room, you can see the second floor kind of halfway up the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, so I designed this room and I just sort of made it that size because it was interesting to me and when I was modeling it. And then when I got in VR, I was, I was like, "Oh my god, this this room is huge! Like the ceiling's so big! I, I had no idea what this room felt like before." You know, um, so those sort of things are just, I think, going to be really special
0: to people.
3: Yeah, and in, in in essence, I feel like what VR is doing, it's going to press. It's going to. It's like hitting the reset button on people's. Um, I don't know if it's inhibitions or expectations, because I I don't think you I don't think I would want to be surrounded by a full-fledged Call of Duty 6, you know, sort of experience where shit is flown at me and, you know, it's hitting the fan all over the place. I don't, yeah, I, I think that'd be great for, like, certain periods of time, but, uh, but I think that, I you know, being able to appreciate much more, I wouldn't want to say simpler, but, you know, the different experiences that are not you know, putting all their efforts on, you know, Michael Bay, explosion, explosion, explosion. It's more like, you know, a a story. And then there's, there's, there's cerebral aspects of puzzle uh, solving, you know, you know, like that sort of stuff, you know, smart games are, um, I I don't know if they're like as prevalent as, you know, the typical first person shooter military game, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, and having all those explosions and action and stuff in VR would probably be fine, but we just need to get there in a, in a mature way where we figure out how to do it over time, and not just add Oculus support to existing games. Um, because that sort of stuff could be cool, I don't know. And I don't think anyone knows it right now. So we just have to start making things and figure out what we know works well in VR, and let it evolve.
3: Yeah, it's, you know, it's definitely evolving into something fucking amazing and, and so are you uh, are you guys anticipating uh the uh, how, how are you anticipating the camera input that oculus is now using for uh f- for the dk2 and, and and maybe cv1 i mean is that going to affect your design process and development process
2: yeah that's something that, that i've been thinking quite a bit about um i think one one of the issues that's going to come up is is you know how we how we model this world to be to the level of fidelity that would let someone put their face right down like to the bottom shelf of the bookshelf and read the, the labels on the books. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, it's going to be, I think, an interesting asset design challenge. Um, in terms of of gameplay, I don't know if it would affect things much. I think it's more just a, of a low-level player perception thing. So,
3: Cool. In terms of your story, I mean, I don't know if you can talk much about it, but I'm I'm curious. Like, what uh, do you have like an outline of what this story is gonna be about? Because I'm it it I'm in there and I'm just like I I want to know who I am. I want to know why I'm here. What 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 the fuck is going on? You know, like it, it, have you guys uh, sort of t- thought about what the story will be about? Yeah, it's um. So I guess story in video
1: games is sort of often means like a story that happens to the player, kind of like a narrative.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we're focusing more on like the history of the environment. So the story is in the history of like who's been there, why this place is the way it is. Um, you know, the different events that happened in the past that left some sort of um, echo there, or some sort of artifact or whatever it is. Um, so we're, we're developing that. the The player experience is less about um, a narrative arc for them and more about them discovering what this place is. Mm-hmm. The puzzles that we're putting into the game are, are essentially there as a, as a form of exposition.
2: So you, kind of, you have to play these puzzles and through the process of solving them, you understand the environment that you're in a bit better and the history that, that has constructed that environment. So a key part of it, and really the reason that it works so well in VR when you have a sense of presence, is that it's a game about these spaces that... that effectively have, have these qualities um, built into them just by virtue of the fact that there were kind of unique people living in different areas of this house. Mm. Um, so the story kind of revolves around these three characters and you can tell after a while playing the game which regions of the house um, they were most active in and kind of how they, how they affected their environment. And conversely, how the environment started to affect them.
3: This is yeah I'm uh, I'm inside red frame and I and I it's it's so soothing for some reason is it the, I feel like it might be the music but it's such a you know what sort of tone are you taking is is this going to turn for the worse are zombies going to pop out of nowhere or am I going to be pulled down a well into uh
2: we're both very much not into horror games <laughs> okay. uh, which everyone we've talked to is like it's like oh is this going to be a horror game they look so excited and I have to disappoint them and say like, no it's actually just a very slow meditative Peaceful game. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> it'll,
3: um, it, yeah, it'll be a mystery, but it definitely won't be um, horror. Cool. Um, yeah, I, so. I, I I'm looking forward to that. Actually, I mean, I think uh, at, at this point the uh, the market for horror games in VR is is getting filled up. I mean, I feel like I mean uh, it's gonna be a huge space, but I, I, I think the horror genre genre is is being pushed really. Really far, and for good reason. I think the DK—it's it, it, because of DK one. You know, it, it, dark spaces look a lot better with the pixels. I think, um, but yeah, it's just—it's—it's uh, it's interesting how uh, you guys are taking a different approach, and I like that. That's really cool. What inspired you to do ref Frame in the first place? Well, you know, let's make a game about exploring. What? Why? Why that? I don't know. Um. So yeah,
1: it's a really long, probably answer to that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I guess the bullet points would be that um, I think both of us um, played a lot of games when we were younger. Um, They were more along the lines of uh, adventure games, Mm. um, and specifically sort of the first-person puzzle adventure games. So obviously people use the example of Myst a lot, um, but I played more kind of obscure games. Um, There was one called Amber... um, Journeys Beyond, which was a adventure game set in a house, so that's obviously kind of inspiring to me. Mm. Um, and that actually was kind of a horror game, or it was about ghosts, but it wasn't that scary. Um, but it, so, you know, when we are pretty young, we play these games um, where you'd be in an environment and walk around it and find things, and it was really interesting to us. And then those kind of games sort of disappeared for somewhat good reasons and some bad reasons, but... Um, we realized we are in a place where we could make something that had a lot of those elements that were important to us. Um, I think Red Frame specifically evolved because, uh, like, I'm really interested in houses or or places people lived as environments, Um, and I thought, well, that would be a sort of a neat game to make, like make something in a house because it's a self-contained environment. You know, we could make the game really fast, which isn't true. Um, (laughs) So once we said, okay, let's build a house... Then we started thinking about like, well, who lived there and what's sort of a, a, a puzzle interaction that would fit with this environment. And it just sort of evolved over time. So it wasn't like some master plan initially, like this is the game. It was more exploration for us, like figuring out what this could be. And I think a big part of, of that
2: puzzle development or choosing to have puzzles in it was thinking back to, you know, why didn't all these old adventure games die? And I think a key component of that is that the, the puzzle structure, the kind of the core gameplay was inherently irrational, that all these puzzles just made no sense generally. Uh, they were all just kind of, you know, arbitrarily twisting knobs and pulling levers and listening for something to happen. Um, so we wanted to step back from that and say, well what, what was it about these games that we enjoyed? It wasn't the irrational puzzles, it was that, that exploration and that sense of being in a different place.
3: Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think, the, uh, I, I like the, I, I really like your vision. What are, what are your top, you know, three games growing up? That if you had to, you know, take them on a spaceship to uh, have it, a new planet, you know, what, what video games would you take with you?
1: Uh, when, when I was younger, um, the Journeyman Project games, I don't know if you've heard of those.
0: No, unfortunately no. Um, but they were, um, they were actually, I think the original Journeyman Project Beat
1: Mist, it was actually the first kind of, point and click color three D adventure game. Oh. It came out in like ninety two or ninety three. Um and it was a really cool sort of science fiction adventure game. Um and then yeah, the one I mentioned, Amber, was pretty cool. Um I liked the Cyberflux games, which were like Titanic, Adventure Out of Time and Red Jack and um a lot of the games we played I think were influenced by the fact that
3: we were on Max. So <laughs> Sort of like Very limited pool to draw from, right? Okay, now I know why I haven't heard these games before. <laughs> okay. Yeah,
1: they, I think they were a lot of them were maybe even just for Mac, or at least they were on Mac. So we tried them. Um, and then on sort of an unrelated note, we both played a lot of the original Bungie games like Marathon and Nif, which aren't really influencing this at all, but were cool. <laughs> well, I think
2: for me it did influence it, but like the, the series of Marathon games, they were pretty straight up first person shooters but they were in some pretty interesting environments especially given the technology of the time and it was effectively like the quality of a Doom engine but they managed to make it feel as though you're on a ship that has a coherent structure to it which I always found really interesting
3: do you guys get enough do you guys get time to play these days are you are you too busy or or do you what's the what's the last game you've you've played um
1: uh, funny enough, I was actually just playing the original Myth game, um, <laughs> which runs really fast on our computers. Um, and I'm trying to think. Um, I sort of just play a lot of things that I download off Steam and try them out and usually don't play a lot of them for that long. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last game I really liked was Antechamber. Cool. Um, in terms of a time investment, I probably spent a lot of hours on that.
3: Um, and really enjoyed that. I think the last big kind of triple-A game that I played was um, Deus Ex Human Revolution. Nice.
2: I always really enjoyed the first one. I thought we did a pretty good job of, of maintaining the spirit in the third one. Um, so, yeah, that's, I, I tend not to to really enjoy these kinds of games much anymore because I find that they, they tend to be way too hand-holdy. But mm. um, I thought Deus Ex did a good job of tempering that a bit.
3: Does the fact that you guys are involved in in creating a game yourselves, does that put a lens over your eyes when you're playing other people's games? Do you start all of a sudden noticing, oh, that texture is off, oh, that mechanic doesn't work, or or do you let yourself get taken away uh, by other people's experiences? It's
2: actually something I find really hard nowadays, Um, and actually I... I, uh in college, I did a film degree and had the same issue with that. For a long time, it was hard for me to watch films and not pick them apart. It's hard to just sit down and enjoy. Um, but actually, now that we're getting more into VR or, and are less in of a pure game game development space, uh, I'm finding that I'm kind of regaining some of that ability to just sit down and just kind of see see the game for what it is and for what the creator needed to be
1: instead of picking it apart. Yeah. Yeah, and the weird thing though is most games we play or all games we play aren't like what we're trying to make. So I'm usually I'm not at least comparing my sort of thought process to games a lot because um, they're usually very different. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always trying to find things that are have sort of a similar piece to it and then see how they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, I think I'm trying to think like a uh, Mirror's Edge, like I was mentioning, I played that a few years ago and I didn't really love it as a game, but I really like just that it had an interesting look to it and environment.
0: Yeah.
1: Um that, so obviously environments really important to us um I think so any anything that does a good job there is interesting. Um and I tend to really enjoy games where it's
2: clear that that they've accomplished what they set out to do even if it's not the most polished thing in the world. Um, mm-hmm. so like I think Anti-Chamber is a great example of that where you can tell that, that you know the creator's voice really comes through in that game even though you can say, Oh, it's got it's got dumb graphics, like yeah, it's just it's white rooms with some shadows and some color, but um, but using that as as the medium,
1: like it actually is a very interesting experience that has something to say. Yeah, and I was I was surprised with Antichamber when I first seen the graphics. I I felt like they'd be kind of oppressive or I wouldn't want to play it very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but something about it I actually felt really comfortable being in that world for long periods of time. Um, so it, I thought about that a lot. Like, why does this game work so well? And I think part of it was just the environment. What was a real thing in a way? Like, it was a real environment that this guy created that meant something. So even at you know a superficial level, it looks sort of stark. There was a lot of interestingness
0: to it.
3: How uh, how profound do you guys think virtual reality will uh, will impact? Uh, how, how profoundly will that will, will VR impact the gaming industry and the way we play games uh, today? Will will it have I mean, it's seeing how you guys are developing something for the Rift. Are you finding uh, yourselves thinking, man, this shit is the future after all? Or, or are you more like, ah, it's, it has potential? What, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it is the future if, if people do it right and don't mess it up. Okay. Um, so I think a very similar example is 3D movies. Um, when I saw Avatar in 3D, I thought, oh, that, that's a pretty good use of 3D. Like it looked really good. And basically every 3D movie I've seen since I've not liked. Um, and I think a lot of those were bad conversions, that sort of thing. So it, it seems pretty clear to me that a really good technology can be sort of squandered um, or it can reach its potential. So I'm hoping VR reaches its potential and I think it has the potential to be a big part of what gaming is. Mm. But I, at the same time, I think if everyone just dumps every game into it, it could sort of sour people to what it is for a while. What I'm hoping is that that VR
2: will actually start to affect other things in a positive way, like like education, for example. And that some of the lessons learned there may actually feed back into games. So I think that would be that would be most optimal.
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, you know what? In terms of you know, because that leads to my next question. It, it, me, you know, thinking about like what is the overall. Uh, societal impact, or, or, or the grand, you know, do you have do you have a grand vision in your mind of, as to what this thing could could become, or are you just sort of just focusing on, on your game and not letting you know too much time traveling into the future get in the way?
2: <laughs> Trying not to be battered around too much right now. I think <laughs> um, it's it's very tempting to try and extrapolate what it could become, but I think we're we're at a point with this technology where some of the initial decisions that are being made right now are going to have a striking effect on, on what this becomes in the future. I and mean, we're, we're you know, we're, we're laying the groundwork for what will become locked in as being the conventions of VR and how people use it, and how people perceive it. So the best we can really do is, is try to make something that we think leverages that technology in a, in a positive way and hopefully be a part of that,
1: of laying that groundwork. Yeah. I, I think that, um, Sometimes it's bad to, to look at technology in an abstract way, like, oh, there's this technology, like, what can it do, but rather look at it as a tool to solve a problem, um, and then when that problem comes up, you use that tool. So uh, one example I've used um, a lot with Red Frame is that there's a lot of art in the game, um, and I used to go to art museums to you know get inspired, and I'd go to the art museum and feel really inspired and just by the museum itself, not just the art. Um, And then I'd come home and put some of the same art into the environment and look at it on a 2D screen and be kind of disappointed. Like, this
0: isn't the feeling I had when I was at that place. So VR
1: sort of solves that problem somewhat. Um, And it's good because the problem already existed and, and this was a tool to fix it. So I'm hoping that people will use it that way. Like for education we shouldn't just use it for everything in education we should say where would this help people
3: really you know mm. yeah that's a good that is a very good point let's let's talk about this whole uh, Zenim, zenimax uh, lawsuit that uh just popped up today i, I think uh, uh yeah our Oculus is going pretty wild over it or not i don't think if they're going wild it's not like the facebook thing but it's it's getting uh, traction and, and and everybody's finding out what are your thoughts on this? I mean, essentially ZeniMax is accusing Oculus of stealing uh, virtual reality information through through John Carmack when they acquired John Carmack. Um.
2: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I guess I'm not. I'm not clear quite what the the argument is there because I I know I saw John mention on Twitter that um, none of the work he had done
0: had been patented. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know like if
2: they're claiming that that he had trade secrets that he took to Oculus or if he was working on Oculus code when he was on the clock at, at Zenimax, or what. Um, but I know he mentioned um, during one of his talks probably a month or two ago that, that um, he wishes someday he can talk about the whole thing surrounding him leaving Zenimax or, li- or leaving it. Um, it sounds like this is maybe bringing some of that to light now.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I mean, it- what do you think this is going to uh, affect at all the uh, production line of of CB one or or
2: I wouldn't imagine so I mean mm-hmm. I think it it might have if Oculus was still just on their own just operating off from VC funding um, now that they've got Facebook behind them I'm sure they've got pretty good lawyers so
3: yeah yeah that's where that army of lawyers comes in handy
2: yeah They're very timely too
3: pretty yeah that's so crazy i mean i and i think that people on Reddit were saying like this is a sign of things to come because now everyone is going to come out of the woodwork to you know claim ownership of some patent obscure and none that was made in the 1990s is that is this a good thing i mean i mean will that will this set a precedent precedent for other people to show up and start you know th- flinging feces at oculus <laughs> I
2: think it's it's pretty common in the tech industry nowadays. I know that at least from my perception patents aren't really used anymore to to protect a, a core product that you want to produce. It's more like how much legal ammunition can we get in case we want or need to go after somebody for some arbitrary thing? <laughs> and mm-hmm. then the patents are thrown around and the size of your patent portfolio is compared against the other person as a as a part of that that tussle. Um
0: so yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it'll be interesting
3: to see how it pans out. It, yeah, it, it truly will. Uh, most likely, I mean, uh, what I'm, what I'm getting from people is that it might, you know, just settle out of court. Uh, but yeah, I imagine it would have to. Yeah. But it's just, uh, super interesting that, uh, this is starting to occur and yeah. Hmm.
2: Yeah. I'm sure we'll see more of it. Cause I'm, I'm actually kind of curious, uh, what kinds of companies now hold patents for for older VR tech? Yeah, because uh, I'm sure they're out there. They just have probably been dormant for 20 years.
3: Eric uh, Eric Greenbaum, the creator of the New York meetup, he's he's an attorney and he create he put on his blog. Uh, he did some research and he found all the companies, m- most of the companies I think that have VR patents. And oh, There's there's a few that you'd never think like. Um, was it Canon or, or or Nikon has VR patents? Oh. Uh, Nintendo has a bunch. Uh, who knows what they're doing just sitting on them. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be super interesting. Uh, I hope I guess, it. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Oh, I guess Nintendo would have some from the Virtual Boy. I wonder how much of that is applicable.
3: Yeah. Huh. You know, how, could it could this get as bad as like uh how uh, in Europe for example there was these injunctions by by courts saying uh I know Samsung and Apple are always at each other's throats and there was I don't know if it was last year or a couple of years ago where a court in in a uh, European country said yeah we're not gonna allow any more Apple phones into into the country because of this lawsuit oh. I mean yeah I mean it, uh, you know I don't mean to be like uh fear always thinking about the worst case scenario but like it, it, I, I, I imagine that if Nintendo comes out of the woodwork and with its army of, of lawyers this could pose a considerable challenge to Oculus legally right?
2: Uh, possibly I yeah I
3: don't really know who knows? Uh, I mean like I say with Facebook
2: backing them I, I imagine there's a lot of protection there yeah I mean it, when you, when, it seems like whenever you get these giant corporations going up against each other it tends to just kind of draw things out for years and nothing really seems to come of it long
1: term so we're not too concerned it seems like facebook acquiring them was um maybe the impetus for some of this to happen too um and it's i guess it's also an indicator that people see it as a really important thing to be involved in so i guess there's a tiny silver lining there that everyone wants to get on the vr bandwagon now
3: goddamn lawyers man lawyers you know what they say about lawyers everyone hates lawyers except their own um, but Jesus Christ, it's yeah. crazy. In, in terms of the release of the CV1, I mean, uh, I, I just saw another post, uh, and, and it was uh, dismissed as speculation. Somehow they were talking about how the new, re- the you know, the CV1 is going to be released in 2015. N- knowing that information, uh, or are, or, or are you guys uh, planning your release of the uh, in conjunction with CV1, or, or you know, what are, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think you know, optimally, if we if we felt like we were in a position where the game was was you know approaching completion and we had a hard date for the, for the launch of the Rips, uh, we might you know try and just crunch on it and finish it. Um, but I don't think at this point we're probably going to make any real hard decisions about that. Um, you know, if it looks like it's going to take us you know four or five months longer to finish Red Frame than when the, when CB1 comes out, we'll just make sure we're
1: for launching within the first year, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like um, if a lot of the important sort of game design decisions and story decisions are there, I'd feel comfortable either like hiring people to help finish it or just cramming on it or whatever. Um, if the actual game design is still not where we want it to be, we're not going to rush that just because it will hurt the game, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's much more
2: important to, to cultivate some really high-quality VR experiences and be slightly late to the game than to try and rush stuff out and have people's first experience with, with the Rift, with the consumer-launched uh, Rift, be not, maybe not be bad, but it would be less than, than what it could be if they just were able to wait six months for some other products.
3: Yeah, that's a very good point. In, in terms of funding, I mean, how difficult has it been finding funding for for this sort of experience? Uh, I mean, I feel like it's uh, it, people are, are having to go through indie developers. I mean, are having to go through Indiegogo and Kickstarter a lot? Is it because investors are are scared of of, of jumping into the virtual reality hype train yet? Or, I mean, how how's that experience been for you guys?
2: Uh, yeah, I think we're, we're in kind of a, a fortunate position where um, we're able to do contract work and then between contracts, we can take some time and then focus in on Red Frame. Um, so we, we made the decision early on not to seek funding and try and just kind of bootstrap it ourselves. Um, the reason for that is, of course, once you start taking on investors, certainly if you take on a big investor, uh, they're going to want to have some sort of control over what it is that you're making. Uh, and Redframe is the sort of product that doesn't really, doesn't really fit into a clear category. It's not something you can easily give an elevator pitch for. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know it's something that, that if we do it right, it'll, it'll be a great thing for people to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so taking out big investments off the table, um, taking out smaller investment like Kickstarter is something that we had, had thought about early on, talked about you know, that's something we want to pursue eventually once we need it to kind of push us to the finish line. Um, but, you know, I'm seeing a lot of these games now that are running into this issue where, where now instead of having one investor who wants to have creative control over, over your game, you now have a thousand investors that want creative control. Um, and It becomes an issue of trying to manage that community, uh, which I know for a lot of people, and friends of ours have done Kickstarters. Um, they've ended up having to put so much energy into managing that community that it's been difficult
0: for them to actually focus on, their, on the creation of their game. Wow.
1: Uh, at this point, um, we've probably spent less than a thousand dollars on Redframe, frame. <laughs> hmm. So it's all just been our own time. Um, you know, spend a little money here and there on models. If you know, we don't want to model it ourselves or something, but, um, we've had almost no financial investment in it. It's, it's a time investment, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I was saying, I'd be a lot more comfortable, um, spending money, um, towards the end, once the game is sort of locked in, you know.
2: And I think it makes better sense um, if you're able to bootstrap things early to then take on investment at the end. Because by that point, all your major decisions are kind of locked in. Yeah. You know, an investor can't come in and say, like, oh, I don't like that it's in a house, can you make it on a spaceship instead? And, like That that wouldn't right. happen at that point. Um, so there, there's less risk for,
1: for the creator of the work at that point, so they can still get the money that they need to actually finish the game. Yeah, and another another aspect of trying to self fund by doing things like contract work is while you're doing that work, hopefully it's in the same sort of space, so you improve your skills and your experience while you're working, and then at the same time you're saving up money to you know take time off and work on the game or have a flexible schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of a self reinforcing way to work um, that's worked
0: well for us so far.
3: Yeah, uh, contact work, I, I'm I'm uh, on that same uh, boat as you guys, and it works out. <laughs> it, it works out. It, does, uh, it gets the job done. Um, it, when all is said and done, do you guys have a ballpark estimate as to how much uh, you're going to charge for Red Train? Hmm.
1: Short answer is no, but...
3: <laughs> okay, no speculate. worries. Yeah, <laughs> it seems
1: like, um,
2: like these kind of short-form experiences... Uh, tend to be like 10 to $15. I mean, higher quality games can go 20 or $30. Yeah. Um, I r- guess it really depends on, on how much value we think is in there, kind of regardless of the
0: length of the game.
3: Do you guys have any uh, uh, ideas as to what your next project might be? Are you already in the back of your head uh, machinating? I just made up a word, machinating what it is that you're going to uh, create next, or, or are you just laser focused on, on Red Frame right now?
2: Well, uh, we we have some idea of, of some things we want to work on. Um, there was actually a game that we started before Red Frame that we realized was far too ambitious. Uh, it was a, a game that takes place on a, a space colony and moving between multiple colonies. Uh, we, we started working on it when we were still very naive in the game development space. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you know if we managed to make enough money on Red Frame to be able to to Do this game; it might be kind of interesting.
3: Yeah. What about uh, a- Andrew? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I I guess same thing. I mean, this this other project we were working
1: on was fairly interesting, just out of scope for us at the time. Yeah, it involved a lot of characters and things. Like a lot of a lot of things are very hard to do, and
2: especially in VR, to have convincing other uh, convincing characters that look realistic.
1: Yeah, I think. I think, especially if, if Red Frame goes well and and the VR aspect of it is successful in terms of not money, but in terms of working as a game, mm-hmm. then we'll probably want to focus on more VR-like experiences, which I think naturally would be built around environments or interesting places that you could never go to in the real world. Um, and actually, that ties into some ideas that we've had for education,
2: where you know, like Andrew was saying about visiting a, a museum and and realizing that you can't really capture that experience on a 2D screen, mm-hmm. um, I think there's an opportunity to make museum-like experiences that that are able to show you things that you can't actually see in a museum. Like, you know, if you imagine you can, uh, you can see a, a scale model of a supernova and actually see the gas expanding out toward you, actually get a, a sense of what that might look like, but within the scope of this uh, smaller 3D world. So something we might look into more.
3: That would be uh, sorry, but that would be amazing uh, to think uh, to uh, implement VR in, in, in museums because I, th- I feel like the works of art and, and sorts of pieces that are in museums won't last forever. everything deteriorates. Um, and so I'm thinking in the grand scheme of things you know in the long run, the Mona Lisa is not going to be around forever. Um, so I figured we might as well digitally uh, make a copy somewhere in the Metaverse and have it there. Forever, technically.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting potential for lots of things like just going to historical places that don't exist anymore.
3: Yeah. Or, you know, walking around on the
1: Apollo 11 moon landing site and seeing what that looked like. Um, That's a good one. That, That'd be a really cool way. And it's a type of education that isn't maybe what schools do, but it's like knowing what it feels like to be in a real historical place is really educational um, at sort of human level. Like, what was this like? and how did it feel to be there? Um, and I think it would give you a lot of perspective on things that you wouldn't get from just reading about it. I think people tend to lose some
2: degree of, of empathy for people that you know, lived in the past. Like it's
0: difficult to connect your life now with what it was like to live in ancient Rome, let's say. Yeah. Um,
2: but if you're able to actually feel like you're in that place, you get a sense of like, Oh, these, these are people who are like me. These, these were real people that had real experiences.
3: That, that I like that. I like that idea a lot. And I, I feel like it could be used not just for like ancient people, but I'm, t- I'm thinking about like, you know, 40 years ago, we were trying to experience what it'd be like to be John Glenn on Apollo 15. I'm making that number up on your way to the moon and, and seeing that from his perspective or sure. it's, or take it even further. What it would be like to see uh, yourself be Jackie Kennedy the moment that JFK gets shot. Oh, that would be crazy. that'd be crazy yeah. and, and, and so I'm, I'm talking about like hit, teaching real history to people like yeah.
1: right be and crazy. Yeah, I think the, what Mike was saying is empathy is a really big part yep. of it you know like feeling what someone else felt and that's really hard to do um, yeah an interesting example recently is we, we were down in LA and we saw the space shuttle endeavor um, you know at the museum there and I'd seen pictures of the space shuttle my whole life but seeing it in person was so different and Obviously, if, you, if you're if you looking at the space shuttle through a rift, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's a,
0: way closer than seeing a photograph of it, you know?
3: Yeah. Um, I'm so. – go ahead. Sorry.
1: Oh, So – and I mean that's something I even did when I first got my rift was I would just download models off SketchUp of like buildings or spaceships and then walk around and see how big they felt. Um, wow. And that was definitely a really
0: uh, different way to sort of think about something than I ever had before.
3: I, no, that, I think. Uh, sorry, Michael, you were saying something. Oh no,
0: that
3: was it. Oh yeah, no, I think yeah, yeah The thought of experiencing uh, a shuttle launch from using with use while using a fifth generation Oculus Rift already makes me wet my pants. Like that, yeah. that is is going to be fucking amazing. And it's you know, I, and I and you're talking about empathy. I'm I'm right there with you. Like I think that we don't have to necessarily. Always, uh, you know, create fictional places that uh, could have never been in, imagined or aren't even possible in our physical universe. We we could still reimagine uh, or, or remix the history that we've already had. Uh, I go back to the same thing: just experiencing a shuttle launch from from uh, a, a space shuttle astronaut. That'd be fucking awesome. Follow me down the rabbit hole for a quick sec because uh, I'm th- I, I want to talk about space and uh, what's been happening lately with this whole uh Russia and the US and how Russia sent an email I don't know if it was an email or they put out a message saying if 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 Americans want to if the Americans want access to the international space station they're going to have to use a trampoline um <laughs> holy shit this is a space race has begun again like are we? Are, are do you guys think we're going to be able to uh, see colonies in our lifetimes? Uh, is the space race really picking up? You know, what are your thoughts uh, on yeah, this? Yeah, I just
1: I just watched a, a talk with Elon Musk about SpaceX, um, and he seems pretty confident we'll be able to put people on Mars in twelve years. So oh shit! <laughs> it's pretty interesting to think about how disruptive new technology could be. Um, I guess a big part of it with um, space travel is cost. Um, and apparently something he was saying in this talk is the cost of material for something like a rocket is actually pretty low compared to the cost it is to build it. So it's all about finding new technologies for assembling and reusability. Um, so yeah, I mean, there could be some disruptive technologies that make space exploration sort of break away. It's been somewhat stagnant for 30 years. Yeah. So I'm, I'm optimistic. Um, I think that. Uh, it's really interesting, even the Dragon capsule, taking crew up to the ISS is pretty interesting um, and surprising how far along that is.
2: Yeah, I think people are getting interested in space again, which they, they hadn't been for a while. And I know that we, we grew up with a space shuttle that kind of, I think, reached the saturation point where you wouldn't watch a, a shuttle launch anymore. Like You wouldn't seek out videos or images of that. You just kind of knew that it was happening. But now with the, the private industry starting to take things over, like the Dragon capsule, it's something that people are actively looking at again. Like they're looking up news about it and actually trying to follow along. So it's pretty exciting.
3: Yeah, it's super exciting. Just thinking about the innovations that will cross over to to us, to regular people, when when you know when a new space race or a new space era of space exploration gets kickstarted again. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that NASA has uh, for a long time had their own VR
0: lab. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, if any of that starts to, to trickle down to consumers or
3: not. Oh shit! No, I really want. Uh, no, Elon Musk also put out a video where he put on a Rift and he was, exp- you know, he was building or uh, checking out his his rocket engines inside of VR. <laughs> which, yeah. So that, so right there, it's we're like very Iron Man like here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it actually seems like
1: a really good way um, to work on design too, like to be able to design in, in true 3D. Um. So, that yeah, that seems pretty interesting.
3: Yeah, I I really want a, uh, a camera, 360, one of those 360 cameras uh, uh, on top of or attached to the International Space Station, and you can view, you know, fr- you can plug in through the Rift, through Wi-Fi, and it's live, like a live cam, 360 cam of the Earth as seen from the International Space Station. That would be fucking awesome. Right, um,
1: and I mean, also, you know, it's... It's not practical to send humans probably far beyond Mars. Like Mars is potentially doable, you know, in our lifetime, but going to like Jupiter's moons or Saturn's moons would be highly unlikely anytime soon, I would think. But you could send unmanned ships there, um, do laser scans of the environment or photographs and, and reconstruct something that people could see in virtual reality. And I think it would make people feel like they're getting their money's worth to pay for these ships to go out, you know, these unmanned um probe satellites, that sort of thing. And if
2: Facebook manages to get one of these in everyone's hands, it it can be just like a TV, like just turn on your rift, and then anyone can just look and see what's happening on on Europa or something.
3: That would be awesome. I think the – I mean, I feel like the next logical step is we're going to start having uh, telerobotics, uh, you know, technology being sent out into space. uh, You know, because I think that artificial intelligence for – you know, spaceships and, and and probes and robots that will explore Europa, for example, or is a really long time away from now. But I, but maybe, I, I, you know, maybe if maybe I'm pulling this out of my ass, but I'm thinking like if we can get, you know, uh, some way to get information going from a person wearing an Oculus Rift here in California managing a robot in Europa and, and having a latency that is doable? I mean, is am I, am I crazy? Is that, is that even?
1: the It could be up to a few hours, I think, if (laughs) the orbits are out of alignment. But, um, but I guess that's part of the reason you might want to model the surface ahead of time uh, with a satellite or something,
0: Mm. um, and then sort of plan your path in VR and and send those instructions to the
2: unmanned spacecraft or something. You could potentially even do it with a video, I suppose. Like if you had a craft that had, you know, a, a 10 minute long path that it would That would move along. Um, You can have it do that and record in stereo, 360 degrees, beam that back, then kind of put yourself in that and see it on a delay.
3: Yeah, that'd be. I like you guys. You guys are thinking like practically. We need to get this. Let's build a spaceship real. (laughs) (laughs) This is awesome. Yeah. I'm one uh, of one of those one of those weird people that I used to think like well, I I really want a space I want a space program a giant space program I want you know uh, humanity to explore the the galaxy or solar system at least give me something um and and I think about like what what if anything could motivate humanity as a whole to to do this and I you know all I'm thinking about is an asteroid holy shit we need an asteroid I know it sounds morbid and it sounds shitty to say but like yeah, I think we need an asteroid. I think we need an asteroid, and then we need Bruce Willis uh, to uh, save us from them, from it. This is a well rig. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think part of it too is that um, it, traditionally space exploration has been about, um, you know, sending astronauts places, and astronauts are a very elite group of people. So there's inherently kind of a lack of connection, I think, with the population, and ex- like most people don't think they're going to explore space. Um, so finding ways to connect them with that experience more,
3: I think would do a lot for PR for the space program. Yeah. I think they're actually doing a pretty
2: good job with curiosity. Um, just, you know, even like putting up on their website, there's a, uh, game that runs in the web browser that they've built in unity. Well, it's not really a game, but you can, um, you can explore the surface of Mars as the rover and actually see what it would look like. So I think that's kind of the first step toward, toward making this sort of connection with the public.
3: Yeah, I know that. Uh, for example, Mars One, that that mission to that one-way mission to Mars, where they were recruiting people um, for a for a mission to Mars in 2020. It's it's pretty crazy, and how they're 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 funding it by putting together a TV reality show that will be broadcast all over the world, and that's how they're planning to fund it. That, I mean, I'm thinking. You, either you're, you guys are idiots, or th- you guys are fucking geniuses, because everyone's going to want to tune in. Holy shit, there's a TV show, a reality show, like Big Brother, on Mars, they, you know, month three. I All I do is stare at rocks. Like.
1: Yeah, it might not be very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, the one-way mission thing seems fairly strange, but I get why it's an idea.
3: <laughs> they got a lot of people signed up for it, too, though. That's crazy
1: yeah i hope they can figure out a two-way solution though <laughs> yeah this it seems like yeah i mean i guess there's an issue with um the, the orbits being out of alignment but that's like a year and a half so if they can build, you know if they can generate fuel on mars with the atmosphere i'd hope they can come back yeah it'd be nice to have somebody come back and talk about going there instead of just dying there but i don't know
3: <laughs> Well, assuming uh, we survive the post antibacterial age, uh, I don't know if you saw that report by the the, the World Health Health Organization, how we're reaching that the post antibacterial uh, antibiotic antibiotic uh, age.
1: The antibiotic resistance is increasing too
3: much. Yeah, so assuming we, we survive that, I, I'm I, I'm hoping that you know by the time I'm 80, I can have my cake and eat it. I can go to Mars and come back. Um, but yeah holy shit it's uh what 50 years from now i think i think it's possible maybe i don't know
1: yeah if it's a priority it's definitely possible we'll see how people feel about it
3: i guess what could what could at all give it a major priority do you think it we we find a bug or like a bacteria there crawling do you think that might you know propel nasa or our, our leaders to say fuck we need to get out get out there and uh you
1: know, yeah, I mean I like that would definitely do it. I think the the problem is a lot of people aren't as interested in science that potentially would be if it was taught better and maybe you know, not ruined for them when they're children. Yeah. So you know, hopefully you know making science as conveying how interesting it is as it is instead of making it sort of this weird thing that people have to do in school. Um could trickle down and make the general population a little more receptive to the idea of doing pure science
3: just for the sake of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Or we find oil on Mars.
1: <laughs> yeah, except you have
3: burned ten times as much to get there, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it
2: seems always to be you know, some sort of a, a political or economic pressure to these things. I mean, even the original space race was largely political. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think probably what's most likely is that there will be some big commercial incentive to, to go to Mars or to go to some other planet, just like we're seeing now with with companies wanting to go out and mine asteroids. Yeah, They, they see that there's a huge amount of precious metal
1: there, so it makes it worth the trip. Yeah, I and mean, the great thing about developing technology is it has lots of uses, so the technology to go to Mars would be applicable in a lot of other places, I would think. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's sort of a corporate space race to Mars or something for, for sort of the same rhetorical reasons that there was the moon space race, you know,
0: um, company can show that it has the best technology because it's able to accomplish that. Yeah. Um, so
1: the, the commercialization is going to make it really interesting in the next, you know, few decades, I think
3: here's, I, and I don't mean to get too, uh, down on America, but you know, America, fuck yeah. Uh, I, 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 you know, the, are we, is our educational system ready for this 21st century that we're, you know, heading towards and, not only that, but I feel like uh, – I wonder if, if knowing the fact that, for example, what uh, the World Bank said that this year, sometime this year, China will overtake the U.S. as the number one economy. And and so I wonder, will, will this be the thing? Will this be the catalyst that will propel a new space race? I don't know. And if it does, are 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 the kids that are growing up today, going to school today, are these schools preparing them for – for, for these new challenges, I wonder.
1: Yeah, it's, it's tough to say if, what school can even do. I mm. mean, I think part of the, the problem is education is sort of partitioned off too much from the rest of our lives. Like we think of it as this thing you do when you're a kid, yeah. and you don't really want to do it, and it sucks. Um, and I think making education sort of a more a part of our lives will be really important because, you know, we need to care about these things not just when we're told about them you know, caring about science or something shouldn't just be something you do because you're taking a class on it. Um, Being curious, I think, is the important aspect here. It's something that, unfortunately, American education seems
2: to to kind of beat out of people is that that sense of curiosity and wonder about things. Mm -hmm. Because if someone's curious, I think pretty much anyone would want to pursue that and then learn. Um, But we're taught not to be curious. We're taught to memorize. So
1: that's an issue we need to overcome.
3: Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it might be
1: solved from the outside by other things that aren't the school system, you know. Um, I mean, even the internet, it's had good and bad effects on people's ability to learn, but it, it is um, objectively good at allowing people to have more information than they've ever had before.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so that happened uh, completely independent of education system. And so, you know, maybe other disruptive things like that will happen along the way.
3: Um, I hope they do. I'm crossing my fingers for them. Do you and, and, you know, I know we're starting to run a little late, but I want to get your thoughts on the future of the Internet itself because I've been uh, paying attention to this FCC uh, preliminary ruling. They were talking about ending net neutrality. What sort of bullshit is that? What do you what do you guys think on this? Have you, have you been aware of it?
2: Yeah, to some degree. Uh, I think for me, jury's still out. I, it, it's, it's a very hard issue for me to grapple with. I mean, at, at some level... I would hope that that you know everything remains free and open, but at the same time, I don't know if I have a holistic enough picture to know um, how that would even work moving forward. Like uh, the world is made out of these giant corporations, and they all have very particular interests. So, I guess it's a matter of lessening the damage instead of trying to, to just stonewall. Yeah, I guess we've been fortunate in some way how open the internet's been historically, and unregulated it's been
3: um it seems like it could have been a lot worse but um yeah i i agree that I'm, i might don't have quite the um broad view of this to have a really strong opinion yeah I, i'm i'm hoping that i'm crossing my fingers that worst case scenario doesn't go through and and i you know i'm hoping that i won't end up being one of those people taking feeling like i took for granted the openness of the internet as we know it today um no.
2: You know, hopefully we won't have to be telling our kids about
3: the good old days of the open internet. Oh, let me tell you. Come on, kids, sit on my lap. Let me tell you about the time I used to uh, be able to porn, uh, browse Pornhub at uh, <laughs> lightning speed compared to uh, the other sites. Yeah, shit, it's gonna it's it's gonna suck because I I do like Pornhub. But in, in terms of like uh, you know, are you more optimistic or are, do you guys find yourselves more pessimistic about the future of the internet? Uh, and let's talk about humanity itself. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, I think I'm optimistic in general. I mean, even, I think even if the internet um, changes fundamentally, that there will still be pressures that end up you know, creating another sort of network or, or I mean, who knows, like, so long as there's a desire for something to exist, there's
1: a pretty good chance it'll, it'll come to be at some point, so. Yeah, yeah. I think there's um, there's so much noise right now that it's a little bit hard to say, um, even what direction we're heading. But um, yeah, there's been definitely a lot of the openness that we've seen in the past has, has been really huge, you know. I mean, just the way we're able to share information and develop things right now and um, collaborate with people in other parts of the world, is, it's been so significant in moving things forward much
2: quicker than I think they would have been. Yeah, I think there needs to be this sort of wild west period in, in anything, the internet including. Um, So I think that it's possible that once you start moving out of that that Wild West attitude that you you can still have a a sustainable system that that people
0: are able to use in a positive way, but Mm -hmm. it's it's yet to be seen exactly what that will look
1: like moving forward. Yeah, I mean, historically, it's it's hard to ratchet back freedoms people have. I mean, it's obviously been happening in some ways, but... um, the, the longer people have freedoms and expectations of what they're able to do, the, the harder it is for uh, any sort of power structure to come in and say they can't do that anymore. So even if things aren't as good as they are now, it's good that we've had this time period to sort of set a precedent for what we should be able to do. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully that will mitigate it somewhat.
3: Yeah, I hope so too. Because you know, I I I understand the power of the internet. There's never before seen in human history a tool such as this that now we can all interconnect and communicate at the speed of light. And it's insane that you know. I think governments are realizing that. Holy shit, this thing is a lot more powerful than we thought. We need to hold on to it. You know, yeah, it's, it's interesting
1: how long it took to realize that. <laughs>
3: Oh, yeah. They were dismissing it. I mean, I, I know they they must have been dismissing, ah, it's just for nerds. Ah, it's just for the kids. Let them play. But, you know, Arab, Ar- I think Arab Spring happened. Uh, Occupy Wall Street happened. And, and uh, you know, just protests all over the world that are organized through social media and the Internet. And, you know, they're realizing, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah,
1: it's, it's funny. I mean, obviously, the government has basically invented the Internet to some degree. But at the same time, I yeah, think I think the um, the social activism aspect of it was sort of under the radar for a long time, and um, social activism is probably in a better place than it's ever been um, right now.
3: Yeah, unless you we count the fact that the NSA probably has kill lists, assassination lists on people, and I think there was a, a report about you know the FBI having assassination lists uh, from uh, allegedly from. Uh, um, they were in conjunction with the banks, and what they had done is they were putting together assassination list of Occupy Wall Street leaders so that they could take care of business that way. So at the
1: same time you you probably heard about that on the internet.
3: yeah so. <laughs> because the so internet there's, doesn't there's
1: lie definitely a push and well, I mean, but there's definitely a push and pull to it yeah. like there's um you know the, the desire to sort of um, control people or whatever. But then there's this openness that's a, a counterweight to it. So yeah, For every for every assassination list, hopefully there's a WikiLeaks. Yeah, or, a, or someone on Twitter complaining about it or an article or something. So, I mean, it, that kind of stuff's been going on forever. Um, it just was much less
2: public than it used to be. Yeah, and I think holistically there's much less of that sort of thing happening now than at, at probably any point in history. I mean, it used to be right. people had terrible lives and no freedom. And They could look forward to dying at 30 and, and, you know, being, being oppressed by a king and they had to say, so
1: we're on on a a positive kind of
0: of direction. As as you get more information, things seem worse because you know what's
1: going on, but um, the government's gone away with very terrible things in the past that no one was aware of, you know, at the time. Yeah.
3: And I wonder if we should, if we benefit from telling people the truth. I mean, I grew up uh, both in Nicaragua and in the U.S. I went to school in both countries. And the thing that I took away from going to school and learning into... the into, into What's wrong with me today? Uh, the thing that I learned from going to school into, in, in these two different countries was the fact that the same tools of propaganda and social control are uh, used across... You know, all over the world. And, you know, the national anthem, the whole pledge of allegiance. It happens in all the countries. And you know how your country is the best country in the world. And you know this, 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 this myth of of you know we're the good guys, no matter what. You know, I, and and I wonder if it's, you know, then you then you grow up, then you go to college, then you uh, find the internet and you find Pornhub and you realize that the world that you live in is a lot more gray than black, and, and it's not as black and white as it used to be. And I wonder if having this freedom of, of, of information, having being able to know the truth actually helps the society, because I'm playing the devil's advocate, does this help the society having having the internet having access to the truth uh, potentially?
1: Yeah, um, in as much as it hurts it because those in, instruments of propaganda have new channels, you know, through true. the internet or whatever. Very true. Um, right now I'd say it's a net positive, but the, it's hard to say if that will continue
3: yeah you know you're right I think the the instruments of, of propaganda are, are or the tools of propaganda have expanded I, I think I don't know if you guys have any experience with this but are you aware that reddit has astroturfers and and you know I know there's people get that get accused as Russian. Uh, spies or Russian uh, contractors just going on Reddit, and, you know, saying good shit about Putin. And likewise, I feel like the U.S. You know, if that's going on with Russia, why wouldn't the U.S. have something like that too, or, or, or any other country?
1: I guess the astroturfing is not a surprise at all.
3: <laughs> I yeah, think it's, it seems kind of obvious that sort of thing would happen. Hmm. Um. But
2: and I think a lot of um, a lot of modern conflicts is played out in that way. Uh, like you know, it's it may not be the case that we need to, to go to war with somebody and, and bomb them in order to try and effect change. Like we might be able to just uh, influence them through through these social channels
3: instead. Yeah. It'd be nice the day we figured out a, a way to just uh, solve conflict through a soccer match or a virtual reality you know <laughs> game of you know, Quake. I don't know, something.
1: Yeah, it might be solved by whoever has the best hackers soon. So, so,
3: yeah. I, I think you're right on that one yeah uh, you know you, especially because in the in this connected world everything is and every country is so dependent on you know electricity infrastructure and the internet infrastructure you take those things away I'm back in the stone age I might as well be you know I might as well be a peasant with a king ruling me you know
1: right um, and yeah no, progress definitely isn't in our biology it's in our institutions and if you lose those,
3: you're basically game people. God damn it. I like me some institutions here and there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen. It has been quite a pleasure uh, be having you on this podcast talking about some uh, random shit and some really cool things that you have working on uh, with Red Frame. I'm really looking forward to your game, man. Great. Excellent. Yeah, no, thanks for having us. Any, any last words? Anything, any updates? Any, uh, or, or how can people follow you? How can people stay in touch and support what you're doing? Yeah, so
2: we have a website, uh, which we have not updated too frequently, but that'll be changing. It's it's redframe, one word, dash game.com. Cool. Uh, and from there, you can, I think, link to our Facebook and Twitter. Uh, if you want to find our company, it's com.
3: Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, uh, again, it was a total honor and pleasure. You guys have been uh, true scholars and gentlemen of virtual reality. Uh, once again, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks. Bye. And bam!